Sun Life Community Church came into being as the result of a compelling vision for a different kind of church, interested in what we call the Sun Life, experiencing and sharing the life of God's Son. Perhaps your heart is burdened these days. We invite you to allow the Word of God through the words of this message to bring rest to your soul and joy to your heart. Our Heavenly Father, once again we come before you. We have praised you, we've honored you, we've worshipped you, we've sensed your presence. We've thrilled our hearts with truths of, of your protective power. And now, Father, as we open your written word, the specific words that you've given for us to know, for us to believe, for us to have our lives strengthened by, we just pray that your spirit will open open our understanding, might bless us even as we seek to honor you as we read and study your word. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Every now and then I feel like before we preach a message, I need to say to you now, get ready for this. Get ready for this. Because today we're going to encounter in the Word of God, back in the book of James, another one of those scary verses that we find every now and then in the Scripture. It's the kind of verse that can make a believer feel a little uncomfortable. Someday I might preach a series of messages simply titled, The Bible's Scariest Verses, and put them all together. The only thing that keeps me from doing that is I fear it would throw me back into COVID days where I'm preaching in front of an entire empty room. (laughs) The Bible's Scariest Verses. Well, certainly the one that James presents us with today would be somewhere near the top of that list. So here it is, today's key verse, James chapter 4, verse 4. He says, anyone, now keep in mind, James is writing to believers. So he doesn't mean the fallen, the lost, the unsaved, the the rebellious. He's writing this whole book to believers, to you and to me. And he says, anyone of us, anyone who chooses to become a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. That's a scary statement. It's a terrifying thought. James is saying there's a choice we can make, because he says anyone who chooses this. So there's a choice that we, as born-again believers, can make that will put us at odds with God, that will make us his enemy. I imagine James had to think twice or three times before he actually chose that word, but said, yes, you know, it's that serious. There's a choice we can make that will frustrate God's Spirit's work within us. And James tells us right off the bat what that choice is. The choice to become a friend of the world. The choice to immerse ourselves in what I'm going to be calling this morning worldliness. Worldliness. And let's start right out with a definition. 
Today's key definition, worldliness. Some of us perhaps were raised in homes, and some of us were told by people along the way that worldliness had to do with bad behaviors. And they might give you a whole list of things that Christians don't do. That's worldly. That's worldly. Christians don't do this, and they don't do that, and they don't do something else. And uh, James doesn't give us such a list. And I'm not going to give us a list this morning, because that's not how we ought to define worldliness. Worldliness, as you see on your sheet, is the perspective on life that all those who are friends of the world possess. Now, James just got done telling us that a born-again believer can make a choice to become a friend of the world. So therefore, if we make such a choice to become a friend of the world, then we are adopting a perspective on life that all friends of the world possess, a perspective that can be called worldliness, a perspective that says, and now here I'm sharing my definition with you, a perspective that says things bring happiness. Don't raise your hand, but have you ever gotten a happy thing? You'd say, well, of course they do. Of course they do. So that's worldly? Well, just let's see what kind of package James puts together here. But it's a perspective on life that says things bring happiness, which might also imply you can't be happy without stuff, without things. Things are what brings happiness. And secondly, everyone has a right to be happy. Amen? I thought I might sneak one out of you there. (laughs) Everyone has a right to be happy, and it's things that bring happiness. So everybody naturally is seeking for things to accomplish and fulfill the right that they possess to be happy. Now, what James is telling us is that born-again believers can, can get caught up in that very life perspective. We can become immersed all the way to our necks in what we're calling this morning worldliness. And we can find ourselves then living as though we were, in fact, from God's point of view, his enemies. We would never say we're an enemy of God. What's happening here is God is saying, they're living like they're my enemy. We would be pretty oblivious to it. Ashamed of it, if anybody told us that. But James says that's a a reality. So obviously, any believer like that, their progress toward perfection, their progress toward Christian maturity is going to be drastically derailed. You, You can't grow in grace. You can't become a fully mature Christian. You can't really become a mirror image of Jesus Christ. And James says that's what this book is all about, moving on to perfection, that finished product, not sinlessly perfect, but that finished product, that grown-up believer. And he's saying, I I want you to keep moving in that direction. Well, if we ever do anything that would make us actually, technically, an enemy of God, 
we're not going to be making much more progress until we get something taken care of. So the possibility that something like this could happen leads to today's key concept. Believers, you and me, people who really trust in Christ, people who really do and can say to Jesus, I love you so and mean it, and, and, and yet somehow it seems like things are a little mucked up in their life. Well, today's key concept says this, believers, true believers, need to learn how to handle the world. Now, the world's changing all the time, so it's like we always need an upgrade on our, our lessons. Are we handling the world well? Or are we getting immersed in it? What we're saying here, believers need to learn how to handle the world, lest the world completely handles them. Ah, don't raise your hand, of course. But have you ever been handled? Somebody comes into your life and they just kind of take control of it and they tell you what to do and how to do it. You start thinking their way and maybe you're even excited about it. You don't even realize you're being handled because the handlers in this world are good. They manipulate us in the stuff. They get us thinking stuff. They get us walking down a path and we don't even know we become their little stooges. In fact, the less we know, the more we remain their stooges doing what they say and how they say it and achieving the goals they have for us. So the point of it is the world and its values, especially the perspective that we're sharing this morning, we're calling worldliness, would seek to do that. And if we don't learn for sure how to handle the world, we will wind up being handled by the world. Because that perspective is all over. It's everywhere that we might go in this world. So in the early verses of this fourth chapter, and by the way, we're going to go through ten verses this morning. <sighs> because James just spreads this, this discussion over all ten. We can't just take one or two and say, we'll do the rest next week. So here we go. In the early verses of this chapter, James paints for us a picture of a world-handled believer. What does a believer who's being handled by the world look like? And I believe in these verses he's painting us a picture. And when we get all done, we can say, does that look like me? Is there any part of that that looks like me? If there is, is there something I should be doing about that? But here we go. It's a pretty bleak picture, actually. I hope it doesn't look too familiar. But James gives here five descriptions, very specific descriptions of believers, born-again Christians, who are being world-handled. So here we go. Number one, he says people like this, they possess an intense desire for something they believe will bring pleasure. That's the first characteristic. They've identified something that, oh man, they are sure that would be the thing. The thing that would bring pleasure. The thing that would make their life work. The thing that would help them overcome whatever. And they have an intense desire for that. If only. My life would be so much better. If only. 
And sometimes we might even say, I'd be such a better Christian. If I just had all my bills paid all the time, wouldn't I be a better Christian? James says in verse 2, you want something. Now, the word, the Greek word that James uses here, want, communicates a strong, almost overwhelming desire. The English translators could have done a much better job than just saying you want something. The verse says, this is something that cries out to be satisfied. The old King James Version of the Bible, how many of you still have one of those? Got it with you today? Maybe, maybe not. Probably have all the editions on your phone. But the old King James edition of the Bible, if you looked up this verse in the King James, the English translators back in 1609 chose the English word lust to translate this Greek word. A strong, almost overwhelming desire for anything. He lusts after it. Every part of him desires it. So the NIV translation that we have before us today seems rather anemic. You want something. You see, the Holy Spirit, and this is, can help us understand this, the level of the, the passion, the desire. The Holy Spirit had Luke. When Luke wrote his gospel, he had Luke use this very word that the King James in this passage in James translates lust He used this very word, and Luke, in a sense, put the very Greek word for this in Jesus' own mouth. It's in Luke chapter 22, verse 15. It's when Luke was explaining how Jesus had said how strongly, how eagerly, he desired to have that last supper with his disciples. Same word that's translated lust in this category is the Greek word, again, strong desire, intense desire. Want it more than anything else. It's more than just I'd like to have it, I want it. It's a, it's a passionate desire. And Jesus felt that strongly about being able to share that final meal, the last supper with his disciples. James now, in these early verses, adds another word. Another key word to communicate the type of strong desire that such world-handled believers are seeking to satisfy. And that's the Greek word that gets translated or works its way down into the English language as the word hedonism. Hedonism. That means a pleasure seeker. The philosophy of hedonism says the the highest and best life is the life of pleasure, of personal pleasure. Whatever that might do, that's how you ought to live. Now, twice in these first three verses, James uses the Greek word from which our English word hedonism arises. He's talking about the pursuit of personal pleasure. That's the goal of the believers who are being handled by the world. James says that's the first characteristic of them. 
if the world has its grip upon them, is beginning to handle them, shape them, direct them, then they, as James says, they possess an intense desire for something that they bring, believe will bring pleasure to them. They're that kind of people now. They have a perspective that says, I've zeroed in on something that is my goal for life. I know this will be the answer for me. This is the, the central thing. I want it. I want it. I can't think about anything else but it. And the world is saying, go for it. Go for it. You finally have seen your, your purpose in life, to have this particular thing, to enjoy this kind of relationship, whatever it might be. James says, that's a sign that the world is beginning to handle this believer. When the believer finds within himself or herself an intense desire for something that they believe more than anything else will just bring them pleasure, delight, satisfaction, fulfillment. And so, being filled with such pleasure and even passion for this thing they believe will bring them such pleasure, James says next, characteristic number two is this, they make the decision, they make the decision to do whatever it takes to obtain it. The worldliness perspective says, well, if it's out there, you've identified it, how badly do you want it? Oh, man, I want it badly. But what are you willing to do to get it? Oh, anything. James says that's a characteristic of a believer who's getting messed up, getting mired in, immersing themselves in this worldly perspective. They make the decision then to do whatever it takes to obtain this thing. And then notice what I put at the end there. Even pray. Verses 2 and 3, James says this. You kill and you covet. These are strong terms. These are people who are serious about getting what they want, what they have to have. You kill, you covet, you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. Now, the truth of it is, God wouldn't have anything to do with what you're asking. But a believer believes, if you want something bad enough, what do we do about it? Pray. Ask God. So he says, you don't have it because, number one, you haven't even thought to ask God for it. And then secondly, he says, and when you do ask. So hold that thought for a moment. Here's the question I have for you today. Have you ever imagined that prayer could come under the general heading of worldliness? That an attitude of worldliness could ever stimulate prayer? Man, I want that so much, I'm just going to pray until I get it. Stimulated prayer by a spirit of worldliness that just says, I want this thing so bad. Because this thing would be the thing 
oh, that would make my life just really work. Would we ever think that God would consider prayer to be a worldly activity? To put it on the list, the old-fashioned list, worldliness. I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't chew, I don't go with girls that do. And I don't pray. Ah, I'd never be on that list. But here James says that the worldly, the person caught up in worldliness, might find themselves, though, praying. Because that's what Christians do. And that's part of the, they're being handled by something that is not godly, is not proper, but they're bringing their Christian experience into it because, after all, they're Christians. So, let me say this morning, the question, did you pray about it, is not all that needs to be asked. When some fellow believer is telling you how badly they want something, how they set their mind on something, how they need to have something, and we say, well, did you pray about it? Sometimes that's not a good question to ask. Maybe a better question is, why do you want that? Has God revealed to you that that's something he desires for you to have? But usually we just say, well, did you pray about it? (laughs) Didn't think about that. I'm going to pray every day till it happens. And then somebody might share a, a Bible verse that might encourage them to believe in anything you pray for, you're going to get. Did you pray about it? You see, sometimes, now we've got to listen to this, sometimes a prayer is doomed for failure before it even leaves our lips. You see, when believers who are being handled by the world pray, this third characteristic comes into play they generally receive a disappointing result. He says, you ask God, verse 3, you ask God and you do not receive. James. James expects God's answer to such prayer to be a resounding no. He would be most surprised if such a believer received his request. However, those who offer such worldly prayers find this result to be most puzzling. And that leads to characteristic number four. They, the believers, the born-again believers who have been overtaken by worldliness, who are being handled by the world, and who then pray asking God for the very thing they have set their mind and heart on that they must have, that they want to have, that they're lusting after, and they don't get, they then express what I'm calling this distressing but potentially constructive frustration. And here's how a frustrated Christian who's not getting what they're praying for might say. What's going wrong? Why hasn't God granted my request? Doesn't he care about me and my happiness? Doesn't he care what a miserable spot I'm in and I've identified what I need to get out of it and I've asked for it, I've prayed for it? 
Don't I deserve a little happiness in life? What's with God and this prayer thing? And though, James would tell us, they do not and will not receive the answer to the prayer that they seek, James then gives the answer that God does give. Characteristic five. James says they, sooner or later, it's always better if it's sooner than later, but they, sooner or later, receive this, what I'm calling a hopefully corrective evaluation. Somehow they receive this evaluation, the whole situation. It might be a dear Christian friend who sits them down and says, I need to talk with you. It might be the Holy Spirit himself who just nudges and stirs them from within. It might be a scripture that catches their their eye and they say, wow, have I been off base in this? I've never even considered that. But here's the evaluation James gives speaking on God's behalf. Verse 3, he said, you ask with wrong motives. Why didn't God answer my prayer? Now, this doesn't mean all prayers, everything. We, but we're talking about very specific kinds of prayers. Oh, God, I want this. This will make my life happy. I need this. I deserve this. Some people might even fit in there. God says you're asking with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get, this thing you're requesting, on your own pleasure. See, James is saying, as far as God is concerned, that's a prayer that's doomed from the start. The father could say, I'm never going to answer that prayer. It's prayed with wrong motives. It's prayed with a wrong understanding of the relationship that you and I are supposed to have. And it's never going to be answered the way you want it answered. And then verse 4 He goes on to say, and this is where we found the verse that we started with, don't you know that friendship with the world, here he puts it a slightly different way, is hatred toward God? See, the motives. Oh, I just have to have, I love this more than I love God. Well, nobody would say that, except God would say that. Yeah, I've been watching you, I've been listening to your prayers. They do get past the roof because I am aware of them. I just can't bring myself to answer them the way you're asking because you have a love in your life that's greater than the love you have for me. And basically when it comes to that situation, it's not a lot of love and a little love. It's basically love and hatred. That's what James said. Don't you know that this friendship with the world that you're developing is actually hatred toward God? It's like God hates that hatred, that friendship. And when you're lining yourself up with these people, you are taking the same attitude they have toward God. And they can't stand God. That's a horrible thought. That I'm, God is receiving hatred from me. 
Not just that I'm not loving his, him as much as I ought to, but James says, just compare them together. As far as God's concerned, love over here, you might as well just tell God, I hate you. Now that's, that's a horrible thought. And so then he says, and anyone then who chooses to be a friend of the world, because it is a choice you're making, he becomes an enemy of God. See, that's terrible. That's a believer, a child of God, who's functioning like they're God's enemy, who's functioning as though they actually hate God. How can that happen? Well, it can happen easily. Because we live in a world that hates God. We live in a whole environment that, that promotes man and his own desires as being the most important thing. And it's very easy to slip into that and even put a little bit of a Christian spin on it. And so we think we deserve the very best God has to offer. And we can, we can ask for it, demand it, want it. And after all, if my life doesn't seem to be working out in the way that I'm just happy all the time, then God owes me happiness. And that's the world talking. That's not God talking. And when Christians start talking that way, they're showing they have a friendship, an alliance, an influence from the fallen world rather than being influenced by the truth of God and the relationship they would have with him. So I'll tell you, there's nothing like getting hit right in the face than to hear God say, give us an answer like that. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And so we could say, just kind of summarizing quickly here, prayers prayed strictly, strictly for personal gain. Prayers prayed to enhance our own happiness and pleasure are stirred in our hearts not by the Spirit of God, but by the Spirit of this world. They demonstrate that we are being handled by the world, and that, of course, is not a good thing. That's why James wrote the book. That's why he included this in it. It's not a good thing, but we can be oblivious to it, can't we? There's a lot of ways our thoughts can go as we build our Christmas list of prayer requests. And James says, don't follow that line of thinking. James was incredibly concerned about this possibility, that this might happen. And I think that's why the Spirit had him use such strong language. Like, enemy of God. Hatred towards God. I mean, that's just over-the-top language. But it's designed to cause each of us who know the Lord, who've been saved, who consider ourselves to be born-again children of God, to say, I don't want to get anywhere near that. I don't want to get anywhere near that. It's kind of like the Apostle Paul. Remember, he warned the Philippians years later in the letter he wrote to them. He told them that there were those in their midst who because of their focus on earthly things were living, and here's another strong statement, living like enemies of the cross. We just sang a song that featured 
the cross and what was done there and how it should, it should stimulate love for the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life. And Paul says, these people are living like the cross is their enemy. They are enemies of it. They are denying everything that was accomplished there because they're just seeking for their own earthly, physical pleasures. Strong language. James adding to it. Well, after giving his readers, I'd say, enough information to diagnose their situation and enough reason to seek deliverance from it, James now spends the rest of the whole chapter sharing with them seven steps, what I'm calling seven steps of disengagement from the world. I would imagine when the preacher, the local preacher, read James' letter to the people, just like maybe when we read it today, we say, wow, some of that sounds like me. I've been there, or at least I'm, I, I know what it's like to get drawn into that. And maybe say, you know, I think I've been drawn in right now. These things characterize me. My thoughts, my desires, my passions, my goals are set on a whole lot of things that just don't really seem very godly when I think about them. So once we recognize that, even a little bit, it's like, what do I do about it? Well, James would say, I'm glad you asked. He didn't just say, get right with God. Sometimes we say that. We kind of try to come up with a short three-word, four-word statement that covers all the bases. James gives seven things to do. We're just going to go through them quickly. You know, no, no born-again believer wants to continue to live as an enemy of God. No born-again believer wants to be doing things that wound and grieve the Spirit of God who is in him. The cry of any truly born-again believer's heart would be, how can I overcome this? How can I disengage myself from this lifestyle of worldliness? How can I shut down these fleshly impulses of mine? Once I realize that's what they are, that a lot of my wish list, a lot of, a lot of my must-have list has come right out of my own human, fallen, selfish nature. And they're not godly things at all. How do I shut that down and redirect? Well, here's the seven-step plan. Go through it quickly. Verse 7. There's three of them in verse 7, so we have 7a, the first part. Submit to God. Just submit to God. Surrender yourself to him as the ultimate source of your delight in life. And of course that means to the daily direction of the companion that has been sent to guide us through this life. The spirit is highly sensitive to the presence and perspective of worldliness that surrounds us and that hounds us. And so we'd say once again, put your hand. Put your hand in the Spirit of God that has been sent to be your companion each and every day. Keep in step with Him. And we could say, well, that, that would do it all by itself. Just submit to God and to the very presence of God with you. But James goes on. The next part of verse 7, resist the devil. Resist the devil. Resist his ungodly attitudes and viewpoints. Resist his inner spirit of rebellion and defiance. That's what he's all about. 
rebelled against God in ages past, defied God, said, I shall be like God, and he was disciplined because of it. But he still has a desire to exalt himself and to build his own kingdom. Resist him. And then we say, how do you go about doing that? Some people kind of see the devil under every rock, everywhere they go. It's like behind me, Satan. You know, all, like it's an ongoing kind of a bare knuckles battle. Let me tell you, you are resisting the devil by your presence in this room this morning. Just by being here. This is the last place that he would want to be. This is a place where we are submitted to God. James says, submit yourself to God and the devil will flee from you. Sometimes I call this a devil-free zone. I believe it is when we're submitted to God. Why would he want to be in here? It's like pouring, worship is like pouring water on the wicked witch of the West. And that's how the devil responds to our, our songs of submission, our songs of praise, our, our, our attitude of, of worship. He's the first one out. And after a while, he learns not to come in at all. This is where he is exposed. This is where his schemes are made known. This is where the father's disgust with him is shown. And this is where the seeds of his ultimate destruction are sown. Resist him. A big part of it, just by being a worshiper of God, being part of the family of God, being faithful in all these things. And then verse 7, but now we're shifting to... uh, Verse 8, he says, come near to God. Come near to God. Meaning that maybe we've wandered a bit away. Because he's talking to believers here. Renew your heart relationship with God. Become a true friend of God. And you'll automatically become an enemy of the world. Make knowing your heavenly Father and each of his attributes your highest goal. That's why, in part, every single Sunday we focus on one of those attributes of God. I mean, we have 30 to choose from that the Spirit gave to us as we preach through them all. This morning, he's powerfully protective. How good is that to know? Every day, there can be a fresh one. We have a chart for the whole month of worship of the attributes of God. Keep those fresh in your minds. And then John, James says, wash your hands. Second part of verse 8. I just say, clean up your act. Your aggressive, self-serving, competitive behaviors. They just got to go. You fight, you quarrel. Why? That's because you want to be top dog. That's because there's something about beating somebody else out that makes you feel good. And James says, wash your hands of that. Allow the Holy Spirit to form you into the very mirror image of Jesus. Number five, purify your hearts. Reestablish godly priorities in your life. 
seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness is how Jesus put it. He said, be sure that's true. Seek him first. Seek his righteousness. Seek his kingdom above everything else. Make that the thing that you have a strong desire, the strongest desire to experience, to achieve, to obtain. And then number six might strike us as a little bit odd. All the way down here he says, grieve, mourn, and wail. Now, I don't want to hear any wailing, but uh, have any of you ever done that? Moms, have you ever gotten so frustrated with stuff that maybe you lock the door somewhere and you go and you just wail? Oh, God, what's going on? And sometimes it's appropriate to wail. James says it is here. Grieve, mourn, and wail. I would say this, go on record as having made a mess of things. That's what we grieve about. Oh, man, I have really messed this up. I've gotten my, my heart and mind so focused on this thing that it's really undercut all kinds of things that are important. And I've realized I, I've just, it's just a, a worldly focus that doesn't belong in me and does not honor God. Allow yourself, and I'm talking to me too, allow yourself to feel the shame of it all. You know, that's pretty much something we've eliminated from the Christian experience. We have people who come to us and share some things. You know they're heart sick. They're talking about things they've done that have just ruined their life, ruined the lives of others. They've, uh, they've made mistakes and they've done maybe in their eyes some horrible things and, and we just say, no, that's all right. That's all right. God, Christ died for that. God will forgive you. And, and yet there is a real sickness of soul over what has taken place and frequently healing and the acceptance of forgiveness cannot really come until there's really been sorrow over the thing. Instead of saying, it was nothing, it was nothing. There's a lot worse people than that. No, James says there's a place to grieve, to mourn, and to even wail over the things that we have allowed ourselves to get into. If we honestly could say, I've acted like I hated God. Could you just glibly move on from that? If God himself were to say to you, say to me, on a given day, come down from heaven and just see us face to face and say, you know, you have been acting like. In fact, this last week, when you did, or as you are setting your whole life up to accomplish this, you are acting like you can't stand me. Wouldn't that be worth grieving over? I mean, every time those words, our mother's words are in our minds, aren't they? Even 50 years later, 40 years. What if God's word that he someday said, you have been acting like you hate me and it hurts me. How would we ever get that out of our head? And sometimes keeping it in our head reminds us we never want to do that again, whatever it was. Grieve, mourn, wail, and then, having felt the shame of it all, cherish God's forgiveness. 
because he does forgive. But never forget that he's really forgiving something. Last thing. Verse 10, humble yourself before the Lord. Resolve just to wait on him. Remove your own agenda from the equation entirely. Yield yourself to Father, Son, and Spirit each and every day. Let God handle you. Let God shape you. Let God move you. Let God inform you. And sometimes we'll be aware of just how different this is from what we're hearing over here. Sometimes we just need to hear this over here and we never hear what the world is saying. But yield yourself to God every single day. Humble yourself before him. Our final thought says this. Christians do not possess an inalienable right to be happy. Say that to yourself just quietly. I do not have an inalienable right to be happy. I don't deserve, just by nature, to be happy. If I'm not happy, it's not that God is ripping me off. I don't have that right. We say here, Christians rather possess an undeniable call to be holy, to be God-honoring, to be God-identifying by our very behavior, where people say, now that's somebody who's really following Christ. That's somebody who's really committed to the teachings of the Bible. But, we say here, however, in their pursuit of genuine holiness. That's what James is talking about, growing toward perfection, growing toward adult maturity in Christ. As we move toward becoming more and more of what God wants us to be, holy in his sight, genuine happiness will be found. I guarantee that. Not what the world calls happiness, but the happiness that is just so profound, that's so consistent, that says all is right with me, and I feel right, I feel in touch with God, I feel like I'm, I'm being what I should be, and he's taken the desires for some of this other stuff completely away from me, and I just desire the life he has. Happiness hardly does the, the experience justice. It's joy. It's peace. It's godliness. And we get it as we humble ourselves, submit ourselves, allow the Spirit of God to walk us right into it. Because that is his plan for us. Heavenly Father, it's too bad that we who know you can ever get messed up. If the moment we were saved, we were completely sanctified, that is, made holy, made incapable of sinning ever again, probably two-thirds of the Bible wouldn't have needed to be written.
There wouldn't be the counsel that James felt compelled to give the believers of his day that's been passed down to us. But Father, we are still living in this world. We still are possessing a fallen human nature. We still have all the capability to become friends with the world and even functionally act like we're enemies of God. We don't want that. And so your word is written. And the things that James said today have been written so that we can read them and you say, oh my, oh my, he's describing me. He's describing some aspects of my life. Oh, I don't want that. I want to do exactly what James by the Holy Spirit told his believers and us today to do. I need to renew myself. I need to submit myself. I need to resist the devil and anything that has his fingerprints on it. And so, Father, I, I yield myself anew to you. Reveal to us areas of our life where the world has been handling us a bit. The world has been telling us what we should desire. The world has been telling us how, fervent we, how fervently we should pursue the attainment of certain things. Father, forgive us. And when we're alone by ourselves this afternoon, if we need to wail a bit, Father, hear those wails as sincere sorrow and cleanse us and help us and remind us that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness in the person of the Holy Spirit. And may we get back on the path, moving quickly along the path toward full maturity in Christ. For this we ask. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this message has inspired you to live the sun life together with us. If you are near Apple Valley, California this weekend, we invite you to join us in person Sunday morning or through our live broadcast. All the details are on our website at sunlifecommunitychurch.com.